when we sing, Love was when God became a man. That was a special request for me. But I don't know how many of you know that. It is not an old hymn. It was written probably when I was in high school or early college days. And it was written by the son of John Walvoord, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, when Rob was going to seminary. And by Don Wirtson, who was the son of the man who had been the president and leader of Youth for Christ, which was one of the first wide area college movements for Christ, preceding navigators and Campus for Crusade for Christ and others. So just a little history. There is some familiarity with that particular passage, that particular song. First time I heard it, Janet and I were attending the First Presbyterian Church in Butte, Montana, and the Moody Men's Glee Club, which was one of the old men's group from Moody Bible Institute came and gave a concert and the gentleman who was the leader of that group for some 30 years this was his last tour he'd had throat cancer and was just recovering from it he could barely sing but he had a beautiful baritone voice he sang this song with the glee club behind him not many things moved me to tears but that moved me to tears because he was singing his story of his relationship with Christ. And in much the same way, we have Paul in 2 Timothy. And you may want to turn there because again, like last week, we're going to skim through and hit some high points. We find Paul sharing with Timothy some of the important things that he has learned about being a man of God. Now, just a little more background on Timothy. We barely introduced him to you. Remember, he was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and he had been steeped in the Jewish faith by both his mother and his grandmother, according to what Paul has to say. But have you wandered through the New Testament and find out how often Timothy appears in either the salutation or the closing of Paul's letters. There's five passages in the book of Acts that mention Timothy. Interestingly enough, Timothy is mentioned in the closing of the book of Romans. He is mentioned both in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He's in the salutation of Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians. He's mentioned in the middle of 1 Thessalonians and again in the salutation of 2 Thessalonians. He's mentioned in Philemon, and believe it or not, he's mentioned in the closing of Hebrews as having just been released from jail. Now, do you suppose if Paul mentioned Timothy in each of these particular writings of his, Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philemon, or is it possible that Timothy was one of Paul's emanuenses? You know what emanuenses is. That's a big fancy word for secretary. 
secretary taking dictation, as a matter of fact. Timothy may well have helped record what Paul wanted in these letters. So therefore, when Paul is writing to Timothy, we have to remember that Timothy has all this rich heritage of what's in these other letters as the background for what Paul says in First and Second Timothy. So he's not reading this as new without context. He's reading it as a continuation of a context of what Paul is sharing with him. Now, as I shared with you last night, First Timothy was my college experience with Paul. Second Timothy was my teenage experience with Paul. Much of what shaped my teenage years comes out of some of the scripture verses in here. So it will be a bit personal at times. But let's take a look at 2 Timothy. And we'll look at verses 2 through 7, where he says, To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Now let me insert here a little ellipsis. To the best of our knowledge, Paul was in Rome the second time, not under house arrest, but now in a dungeon. So he's writing to Timothy from a difficult situation. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now when I got to college, One of the first organizations I ran into was Campus Crusade for Christ, and they very quickly said, you see this little gold booklet? Take this thing and read it to somebody in the student union building. Just walk up to a table, introduce yourself, and read it to them. Do you think I was timid? Do you think I was powerless? I didn't know these people. I didn't have any love for them but I guess I would obey. And so we use that verse. And we use it a lot. Oftentimes I think we use it a little out of context. Because Paul is writing this to Timothy in the context of being a pastor in a church. And he's saying, Timothy, remember that you have been charged by God to conduct a ministry. And it is an important ministry. Somehow I got two copies of the same page here. Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me Now understand, by this time when Paul is writing this, he has been what? 
He's been made a rock pile. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten several times. He's been whipped. He's been abused in about every way that can be abused. And now he's sitting in a dungeon. And he said, Jesus Christ has strengthened me. Strengthened him in what way? To be true to the gospel. To remain consistent in what he had to say to others. Repeatedly, Paul reminds people, the message that I delivered to you when I first encountered you is the same message that I'm giving to you now. And it's the same message I'm giving you at the end of my life as it was immediately after my encounter with Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 5 of 1 Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is love stimulated by God. It's not love stimulated by, gee, I like you and you're interesting to me. It's love stimulated because God made a difference in Paul's life. And because of that, Paul passed on that love to others. And discipline. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 7, the last half says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And we talked about that last week, what some of that discipline looked like. So Timothy is being reminded by Paul, stand firm. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who had abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffered these things. But, and this is an important phrase, fact is there is a chorus for this verse I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day what did Paul entrust to Christ remember Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees so much so that when the religion of Jesus Christ rose up, the understanding of who Jesus Christ was, that Paul was persecuting these new believers in this Jesus Christ because this was not according to the teaching, as he understood it, of the Old Testament. He was an ambitious person to try to please God. But all of a sudden, on that Damascus road, Paul did a 180. And instead of persecuting Christ, he became an obedient follower of Christ. What did Paul entrust to Christ? 
I would suggest Paul entrusted his entire being to Jesus Christ. All of what Paul wanted to be, all of what Paul intended to be, all of what Paul thought there might be in terms of a future. And Paul was convinced there would be a resurrection. So he's talking about his eternity. He committed all of that to Jesus Christ. question is, what have you entrusted to Jesus Christ? Is he fire insurance? Is he a good way to get together with some nice people who are easier to live with than others? What have you entrusted to Christ? But he puts, a, he puts an interesting phrase at the end of this, until that day. What day is Paul talking about? Timothy clearly, or at least Paul thought Timothy would clearly understand what that day was. And being steeped as a Jew, that day is the day when the Messiah appears and establishes the eternal kingdom. I would suggest that Timothy is familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where it says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. I laid a foundation, another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. And if a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. What's being described in that passage of Scripture? It's what we often refer to as the Bema judgment seat of Christ where those of us who are believers in Christ stand before Him and Christ judges our works. Now it says after that there will be tears at that point, but after that there will be no more tears in heaven for those of us who believe and are resurrected in Jesus Christ. I think that's the day Paul is referring to for those of us who are believers in Christ. And Christ said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that He referring to Jesus, is able to keep what I've entrusted to Him. What has Paul entrusted to Him? Everything. Until that day when we stand before Him and we see Christ as He should be truly seen without the limitations of our human understanding. Interesting challenge. How often do we remember in whom we have believed? How often do we think about what have I entrusted to Christ? How often do we think about am I entrusting in Him something that's worthwhile? Gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and stubble. Paul shifts gears then 
And I'd suggest, if you're taking notes, that you go to point three. He starts talking about how to develop other men and women of God. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's an interesting challenge. Entrust these two faithful men. We've talked about entrusting all that we are to the Father. Now he's talking about entrusting the message that transforms men's souls to faithful men. Where do we find these faithful men? Or these faithful women who will be able to teach others also. We're looking out here. The question is do you want to be one of those faithful people who will be able to teach others also? In Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whether whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute or good report, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Some translations say, think on these things. We referred to this last week as well, in terms of spiritual discipline. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now what Paul is communicating to the Philippians and Timothy is well aware of this because I'm convinced Timothy jotted these words down because at the end of Philippians Paul says see I signed my name so you know this letter's from me because apparently Paul's handwriting was a little difficult to read. Timothy is well aware of this passage. What Paul is saying, if the faith has transformed me, let it transform you so that you have something to pass on to somebody else who will be willing to be transformed. If the message of the gospel of Christ can change me, it can change others. Do I want to be an active participant in that process? One of the verses I encountered before I was a teenager crops up for us next. In chapter 2, we're going to be extracting a phrase out of the middle of the chapter. Starting in verse 14, remind them of these things. Remind who? Your congregation, the people you're encountering, the people that you're sharing Christ with. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. And Timothy is repeatedly told not to get into these kind of esoteric arguments about 
the meaning of this or the meaning of that or what this word means or what that word means. But then Paul gives him literally a command. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling, or as the King James says, accurately dividing the word of truth. I don't know why that particular verse, well, I know one reason why it was pumped in me because I was told to memorize it when I was... But it gripped me. It, it made the impression on me that there was a job I had to do. And that was to be an approved workman. Accurately handling the word of truth. Now think about that. What does that look like? It means read the word. But not just read it, learn it. Comprehend it. Memorize it. Ponder on it. Chew on it. Discuss the word with others. Most of all, know the author of the word. I challenge you that if we get into our Bibles and we start reading and looking and digging around, something amazing is going to happen. What Jesus Christ told the disciples right before He was crucified, He said, it's good for you that I go away because if I go away, I will send you the Comforter. Another word for the Holy Spirit. And He will teach you. He will give you understanding of the Word of God. So as we start digging around in this book, the Holy Spirit is given the opportunity to work in us to bring about understanding. And as we understand the book, we get to know the author of the book. And that is the greatest preparation for being a reproducing Christian. And I challenge you with this. If the Bible contains the message that transforms men's souls. Why would we want to exchange that for a message which may change men's circumstances? And that's what Timothy is being encouraged not to get caught up in. Not to get misdirected away from the message that transforms men's souls. Because being a Greek by heritage from his father and growing up in a Greek society and pastoring in a church that has a Greek frame of mind, what are Greeks love to do? From Aristotle and Plato down, they like to philosophize and discuss this and that and the other thing. Why do you think when Paul was in Rome, he found a whole street full of idols and temples to every god the Greeks had run into. 
because they wanted to be certain that they had dabbled in everything that might be of benefit to them. And Paul is saying, focus on the truth. Not a whole bunch of stuff that may be the truth. Focus on the truth. Going on later in chapter 2, starting in verse 22, Paul says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. And let me assure you, that is very true. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. When you get punched, what do you do? Ask Rob sometime what, how you respond when you get punched. He's been punched a few times. What Timothy's challenge to do is not be quarrelsome, but to be kind. Kind to who? Kind to all. But be ready to teach, be patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do as well. If we think church division and tension and arguments and church splits are new in our generation, no. We have it right here in front of us. This is first century stuff. This is 60 years after Jesus. 60 years, no, 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, 60 years after his birth. You know, whether you're in leadership in business or you're pastor of a church, an elder in a church, the toughest job in ministry is not punching back but addressing air with grace. There's a difference between punching back and giving a gracious response. And it's a very tight rope. Because when you speak truth, the hearer of truth sometimes thinks that you're punching. And all you're doing is simply sharing truth. A punch comes from the Holy Spirit. Timothy is being challenged to do this. Was Timothy, in the first Timothy, Timothy was in Ephesus, and it's very clear that's where he was. Timothy may well have still been in Ephesus pastoring when 2 Timothy was written. And then there's probably two to three years between these books. Ephesus was a church where there was constant turmoil one kind or another. In chapter 3, we jump ahead again 
starting in verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, and purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Remember, it was just outside of Lystra that Paul became a rock pile. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through Christ, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's an important phrase to not leave out. The scriptures, the sacred writings, these are the Old Testament writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Jesus. Then we hit one of the high point phrases. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, and I will insert, woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now stop and think about what that says. If I want to be an equipped worker for the Lord, what do I need? I need a heavy dose of Scripture. This isn't a new message. Moses, when speaking to the people of Israel just before they were ready to go into the land, in Deuteronomy, recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today, what words were those? They were what we call the Ten Commandments. They were the instructions for how to worship God. The book of Deuteronomy is how to be a godly nation. These words which I am commanding you today shall be upon your heart. Now that's not like putting a big old heavy anvil and putting it on your heart and laying down letting it press on you. It means that it's taking possession on your heart these words shall take possession of your heart you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates of your city. But Moses is trying to communicate to the people of Israel is God's perspective, God's message to you shall be from the most intimate part of your house and your bedroom, of your life in your bedroom, to the most public part of your life, which is at the city gates where you conduct business and politics and trade. And doesn't it sound familiar that when you think about this, it's profitable for teaching. What do you do with your family members if you're a father or a mother? And as you rise up in the morning and as you go through the day with your children, do you teach them? When they need it, do you reprove them? Do you rebuke them? To Don't do that. Correction. Correction is the process of not only saying don't do that. It's the process of saying do do this. Turning. For training in righteousness. That's the process of rehearsing what God has to say. So that the man of God may be adequate. Equipped for every good work. I would suggest that this verse is a foundation verse for what we at Emmanuel Community Church have committed ourselves to do and be. We've committed ourselves to respect the Word of God. We've committed ourselves to understand the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, both in terms of don't do that and do do this. And to use the word of God to point others to the God of the universe. This is a key verse in my life. Is it a key verse in yours? Harking back to what we just said. If I want to be an approved workman, rightly handling the word of truth, can I do it without understanding that the scripture is inspired by God and is profitable as we've just discussed. I think it's important. Then we're going to turn a little bit more. Paul gets, as he often does, he turns a corner in his letters and he starts talking about what life is like as a believer. And particularly what life is like as a minister. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wishing to have their ears tickled, 
they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you want to sum up ministry, verse 2 does it. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And in another place, we're told, be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the faith that is in you. I believe that comes from John. For the time will come, but be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The summary of ministry. Now, if we were doing a parenting class today, what would we say to you as a parent? Be ready in season and out of season to what? Rebuke your child, reprove your child, correct your child, exhort your child with great patience and instruction. question is when you've been the battle with a child that you're trying to direct first encounter second encounter one fellow told a story that in his house from the time his boys were a little more than knee high to grasshoppers so they were to come downstairs self-propelled Mom would call out, Have you made your bed? No, I haven't made my bed. Back up the stairs they would go and make their bed. Eighteen years, have you made your bed? He then says, They went to college, dropped in, and the son visited the son, came to his room in the dorm. Lo and behold, what did mother discover? A made bed. Janet will tell you that her son today is kind of a neat freak about having everything put away and everything have its place. Was it that way at home when he was 6, 10, 14, 16, 18? So how long does it take for God's word to produce fruit in the life of another believer? One of the fascinating things that I observed is is when we were working with new believers in college or folks that had come to know Christ at home and went to college, that in a period of months we would see dramatic changes in these folks' attitudes, understanding, and in the way they lived life. Literally, in months, we would see changes. In fact, as we got so used to the idea that in a period of three to four years, we could take somebody from literally infancy to young adulthood in Jesus Christ, that we began to think that was normal. And then I graduated from college, 
and started working with people who were working a job and had a family and had obligations and all these things around them. And suddenly the rate of change became significantly less. What I was used to seeing in college in six to nine months took five years, six years. And it took me a while to understand that in college I had 100% of their time, energy, and mind dedicated to the idea that I'm here to change. I'm here to learn and change. Once I graduated, I kind of have the world by the tail and I don't need to worry about change so much. And it took a lot longer for what we put into their minds to start coming out of their mouths and start coming out of their lives. So that's why I think the words great patience and instruction are part of being a pastor. People don't change rapidly overnight in the average situation. There are exceptions, but not as a general rule. And the other part about this is, in verse 6 it says, I am, re- I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. Paul knows that his life, the number of days are very short at this point in time. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, remember, that day when all that we've done is tested before Jesus Christ, and not only to me, but also to all have loved it, who have loved his appearing. Now I ask you, most of us are on the other side of 50, and most of us are aware that life is not going to go on forever. fact is, it wasn't too long ago that my cousins and I were sitting around having a family reunion, and we looked around the room and said, we're the old guys. It was not too many years ago that there was a whole generation of parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents that were considerably older than us, and suddenly they're all gone. Now, in that situation, we had the graceful knowledge of knowing that most of them were at home with Jesus. But we looked around the room and said, we are the last generation. We are the generation that's left. And our time on earth is limited. The question I have for you, even as I ask it of myself, have I fought the good fight? Have I finished the course? What course is that? The course of doing what Jesus Christ has asked me to do. Have I kept the faith? Do I have any assurance that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness? Not because I'm here to get a crown, but because... 
it is the evaluation of Jesus Christ that I have done the previous three things. The question is, is how do you want to finish? How do you want to present yourself to Christ? You know, we were at a men's retreat here a few years ago. And a fellow by the name of Howard Hendricks, who happened to be one of the professors that Rob had the privilege of sitting under, I'd never met him before personally, but I'd listened to hours of his tapes. And at that point, he was about the same age I am now. And he said, you know what? Guys, and half the guys in the room were on this side of 50. He said, I don't think the word retirement is anywhere between the front cover and the back cover of the Bible. question is, is how are you finishing? And this is a question that Paul is putting to Timothy, who has got to be about 30 years younger than Paul. 25 to 30 years younger. He's in the prime of his life. He's in the middle of his ministry. And Paul's saying, how are you going to finish? I ask you this morning, how are you going to finish? Referring back again to that second verse in Philippians that we just read a few minutes ago. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Emphasize that again. The things that you have seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. When you see somebody who's living the Christian life well, copy them. Figure out what they, what what it is they're doing, and do it too. Paul knows that he has lived his life well, and that he is an example for others. Then Paul gets even more personal. He starts instructing Timothy to do some things that would bring comfort to Paul. Make every effort to come to see me or come to me soon. That means Timothy's got to pack up, find a boat, float it to Rome. Now we think that's a big deal back then. Uh, If we were going to Rome today, it wouldn't be a big deal to us. In that day and age, it would be sort of like us saying, gee, we want to go to San Francisco from here. That kind of a journey. But we have what? Automobiles that don't break down and ships that make the journey without breaking down and airplanes that make the journey without breaking down. We don't think it a big deal to run. Well, it was a little bit more of a big deal. But people at that time traveled around the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire with more freedom than we think and traveled regularly. You look at Paul's missionary journeys. How many people were moving around the empire? But they measured travel time not in hours and days. They measured it in days and weeks and months. But they traveled. 
So he's asking Timothy to come to him. And then Paul shares, For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And I don't know whether that's tongue-in-cheek or whether that's really Paul saying, He got tired of living in the dungeon with me, so he went off to Thessalonica. Understand Thessalonica was a rather pleasant place to live. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and these guys, I think, were had gone to those places because Paul sent them. Only Luke is with me. Now Luke became part of Paul's life somewhere about the first missionary journey. So Luke's been traipsing around with Paul for 15 to 20 years at this point in time. And he says, Luke's still here. Think what it would be like to have a personal physician. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. Mark, don't we remember that Barnabas and Paul had a big argument about John Mark after the first missionary journey when John Mark bailed out after a few few weeks on the missionary journey and went back to Antioch? And when Paul got ready to set out on the next missionary journey, He was going to have no part of John Mark. The fact is the argument is so bitter that Barnabas took Mark and went one direction and Paul took another, Tychicus I think it was, and went his way. He said, bring Mark to me. Somewhere something had happened in Paul and Mark's relationship that suddenly Mark was somebody that Paul wanted to see before the end of his life. Why does he want Mark to come? Excuse me for a second. (coughs) For he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I've sent to, to Ephesus, when you come Bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Now, which books are these that would be so important to Paul? Were they Greek philosophers? Were they some journey journals? Were they some documents about how to conduct war? We don't know. It doesn't say. Knowing Paul's character, I suspect they were copies of the Old Testament. Old Testament books. Now, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Well, that's pretty blunt. You know, by the way, there are certain people we should avoid. They're just poison. And look out for them. So, being in a dungeon, being close to the end of his life, Paul asked Timothy to do something very personal for him. 
as a minister of Christ is sometimes you drop everything and go to the bedside of a saint? I'd suggest yes, we do. But I also suggest that it's a blessing for both. Now, as we're coming up at the end of the book, I think the book of 2 Timothy presents a question for us, a couple of questions to ponder. Am I a disciple? A living, breathing example of God's redemption, of God's regeneration by the Holy Spirit, of a transformed person. That's what a disciple is. Somebody who is being transformed because they're willing to be daily engaged with Jesus Christ. If I am, this book is going to have a lot to say to me. If I'm not interested in being a disciple, uh, I can take our conversation this morning in this book and set them aside and forget about it. But if I'm serious about being a follower of Jesus Christ, this book is important. And if I really am a disciple, her question is, am I really a disciple if I don't reproduce. What's this book about? It's giving Timothy tools to reproduce. To generate in others, faithful men or women, what's been invested in Timothy. Now remember that God used his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice and then Paul to build into Timothy a dynamic, mature faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy's been entrusted with much. And Paul has challenged Timothy to find other people and pass on what's been entrusted to you. The kind of people who will pass it on to others. Who are you passing this faith to? Onto. If this faith is real for you, who are you passing it on to? That's a question I ask myself regularly. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the privilege of your word. And we thank you, your Holy Spirit can use your word in our lives to give us understanding about who Jesus Christ is and to make it possible for us to know You, the Father, and to know You well, to know You so well that like our own fathers and mothers, we know what You want even before You tell us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be those kinds of students. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.